Hello, I'm James Fowey. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we are talking about Image Comics' Die. Die is the story of five 40-somethings who have had problems readjusting to society after being stuck in a fantasy world for two years as teenagers. However, there might be a chance to return and save the friend they left behind all those years ago. Do they take it? Die is created by Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans, written by Kieran Gillen, illustrated by Stephanie Hans, and the lettering is done by Clayton Cowles. It is published by Image Comics, like James mentioned, and the first issue was released in December 2018. Yeah, something recent and fresh and highly relevant uh, to our never-ending story podcast, which is why we paired them together. James is discussing... Uh, For the history segment, I'll be going first and talking about imaginary worlds, uh, how we engage with them and how people feel about them. And I will be discussing the creators, Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans, and what they were thinking and what they were trying to kind of put forward with this comic. All right. Very excited to see how these two go together. Uh, So as I was saying, I'll I'll get started. First off, I was interested in Kieran Gillen's genre choice to make a comic that's about entering a fantasy role-playing game, a horror comic. And uh, because of our recent episodes and a lot of the things we've covered in the past and my love of fantasy, I was also interested in why we as players want to enter the worlds of fantasy role-playing games, uh, what kind of people want to do that, the effect it has on us, and why some people are so afraid of those imaginary worlds and those activities. So when I started uh, researching what Kieran Gillen had uh, put into uh, this work, Die, I learned that he was really influenced in his research about the history of role-playing games by a book by John Peterson called Playing at the World, a history of simulating wars, people, and fantastic adventures from chess to role-playing games. And what he learned about this that was very different from what he had heard before was that something called paracosms were a big part of the 20th century stew that helped to create fantasy tabletop role-playing games as we know them today. He had already known, as our listeners and we ourselves do, about the intersection of Kriegspiel-inspired games and the fantasy genre helping to create games like D&D. But paracosms was something new, and it relates directly to what I was interested in talking about for this history segment. And to learn more about Kriegspiel, you can listen to our D&D podcast. Yes, our Dungeons & Dragons podcast had Claire do a wonderful segment that talks about Kriegspiel, this uh, German strategy game for officers that uh, inspired a whole line of war games that helped to lead to the creation of D&D. Now, a paracosm is a detailed imaginary society or world that is repeatedly engaged with. And according to Marjorie Taylor, who who did a study that I'll be talking about called Paracosms, the Imaginary Worlds of Middle Childhood, a paracosm often has governments, 
geographies, languages, cultures, and associated artifacts. This term was first coined by Ben Vincent in 1976, himself the uh, subject, in part, of a study about paracosms by Robert Sylvie, and this was the first study that brought paracosms to the attention of developmental psychologists. Uh, just so you know, uh, Ben Vincent created the word using ancient Greek, para meaning alongside or beside, and cosm meaning world or universe. Now, we had known about paracosms before this uh, because they had come up in the interviews and autobiographical writings of some very famous writers who had had paracosms as children. For instance, C.S. Lewis and his brother had come up with uh, imaginary worlds. C.S. Lewis's was called Boxen and was populated by talking animals, and it <laughs> would be the basis for Narnia in the Chronicles of Narnia, which he would write. Tolkien, of course, in his teens was already coming up with languages that he would need a people to speak in the world of Arda in which the Lord of the Rings is set. Now, one of the earliest known paracosms historically is from the surviving Bronte children. Emily Bronte and Charlotte Bronte, of course, the authors of Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and the Wide Sargasso Sea, respectively. All of them uh, were artists and writers. Uh, but this fantasy world that they created and they played with as children is actually a part of the uh, world of die that mm -hmm. Kieran Gillen uses because it's such an important paracosm. Uh, their paracosm that they first started and shared was called Glass Town. Oh, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, now you get it. Now you get to, to understand something about the world of die. Uh, Branwell, uh, the uh, oldest boy and the only boy, got a gift from his father of 12 wooden soldiers. And he immediately took the box to his sisters and they all grabbed one and they each named them. Um, and then they created a world, began creating a world in which they uh, these characters could inhabit. Each of the children was given control over an island in this world. The capital of each island was called Glass Town, and together these islands formed the Glass Town Confederacy. It sounds a lot like just playing dolls. Like, it just sounds like playing. It does sound like playing until you see... I mean, it is a form of play. That's very important. It's a form of play. But the thing that makes something a paracosm is the amount of detail that goes into it. Okay. Something like Middle Earth is not just playing with dolls. Neither was Glass Town or the other imaginary worlds that the Bronte children would come up with and play for the rest of their life, right? Poetry in that was never published. Uh, so it's, it's a more detailed form of play, often with documentation, you know, something that you, you've written uh, and made that is of that world. So, why do children do this? Why do they engage in that kind of imaginative play, role play, and world building? A few ideas on that from developmental psychologists. Is one because it's really fun? Yes. Uh, they don't mention that. I, I think that's a given. <laughs> it's a good time. One, check. Also, uh, children learn new skills from make-believe. It's thought that they can also uh, process feelings like grief. It's been written that the Bronte children may have been using their imaginary worlds to do that. Uh, those four surviving children were originally part of six siblings. They lost their mother before any of the children were eight, and they lost their two older siblings before the four younger children were ten. Oh, jeez. 
Yeah, it's a lot. And it was one year after that last death that they came up with Glasstown. Another thought is that children use imaginary play like this to experiment with agency before they're adults. What would it like to be able to make choices? It's a way of of putting that on and trying it on for size before you grow up. Another idea is that it's helping them to formulate causal theories of the world. This is uh, one written about by Alison Gopnik in The Philosophical Baby. Uh, uh, They write about how... um, It helps children to understand when they play these imaginative games, what are causes and effects? What events will lead to what other events? And if things are this way, what could have led to them being Mm. this way? Okay. And paracosms provide a very complex way to deal with those ideas. Now, let's talk about the qualities of children with paracosms. Last episode, we were talking about, well, what kind of person loves a fantasy? And we don't quite know that, but we do have studies on the kind of children that create imaginary worlds. So, according to Marjorie Taylor's study, which I mentioned earlier, about 17% of children have paracosms. And and this comes with a qualification. Claire was saying earlier, well, isn't that, couldn't it be like playing with dolls? And I was saying that actually in this study, they really qualified the amount of detail that had to go into a paracosm. They even had a lot of kids, well, 11% of the kids had what they called pre-paracosms, but these children hadn't put the work in. So you really, <laughs> you couldn't call it a paracosm yet. So know that this really, these really are detailed worlds when we say that, when we use that word. They found that these children had No difference in verbal comprehension. No difference in divergent thinking. They did, however, have more difficulty with inhibitory control. What does that mean? Well, you try to study, uh, if they're trying to complete a task, how much do associated thoughts with the task lead to other associated thoughts to other associated thoughts? Oh, so it's... A little bit scatterbrained? Not scatterbrained, but their way of thinking can spiral off in different directions, building on each other that do take them away from the task. This in adults has been found to correlate with highly creative people Mm. because it's the kind of thinking that can lead to a creative breakthrough but can also be distracting. Uh, So one of the things they found was that they did have increased creativity scores on creating a fictional person of course, uh, and increased creativity scores on storytelling. They did an exercise where they told the kids the beginning of a story and then said, finish it. And the Paracosm kids had the more creative stories, Um, which is a bit subjective, but I think they, they really did try to be fair in the study about that. Now, in adults, the uh, extension of experience through narrative Uh, has been correlated to superior insight into human behavior. So perhaps our paracosm kids have that to look forward to. Now, I want to mention another finding in the study uh, that flies in the face of a prejudice we may have about the kind of child who would create an imaginary world. You'll remember in The NeverEnding Story, uh, Bastion Balthazar Bucks' father says, get your head out of the clouds and focus on your problems at the beginning of the movie. Well, in this study, they looked at how the kids coped with problems in their lives, and they put it in two categories. One, positive coping, and, and two, negative coping. And they found that the kids with paracosms were either no less likely to use um, negative coping strategies, and in one case, in one study group, we're much more likely to use positive coping strategies. Uh, This would be 
uh, active and support-seeking coping strategies. Let me think about how I can solve my problems or ask someone who may be able to help me to, you know, to come up with a way of solving them versus negative ways like distraction and avoidance. So let me put it out of my mind or, for example, play video games to distract <laughs> myself from it. Children with paracosms were no more likely to do that kind of uh, coping strategy. So the study found that contrary to what Balthazar Bucks' father said, having your head in the clouds and dealing with your problems, not mutually exclusive. I like that. Yeah, I like it too. I'm very prejudiced. <laughs> now, uh, I do want to mention how paracosms combined with fantasy and Kriegspiel in the 20th century to help form tabletop role-playing games as we know them today. Uh, I used a source different than Kieran Gillen because it related more to what I wanted to explore in this segment. Although that book came out later and did reference playing at the world, this book is by Joseph P. Laycock. It's called Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games Says About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds. Now, I learned in this book that although paracosms, as far as we knew historically from those creative types that had talked about them, was usually something you either played with just a few friends or family members or by yourself, in the 20th century it became something that people were doing in big, big groups. Life magazine in 1941 did an article about the planet Atzor, and Atzor was created by a young man, a Nebraskan, named Frederick Pelton. And in Lincoln, Nebraska, he was playing in this paracosm that he had developed with about 400 other young people who were dressing up in medieval garb and holding court in the many empires uh, of Atzor. They oh, had, wow. Yeah, and a lot of women were playing too. It was emperors and empresses and all the different people of their court. They had their own postal system. They created passports. They had their own dictionary for their fictional language. And these sorts of people, when they got into a conflict with one another and war was declared, would settle it with miniatures, but that wasn't so much the point. However, these sorts of people on college campuses were mixing with those who were playing war games and who were building things like D&D. Another thing that paracosms did to directly influence tabletop role-playing games in D&D was to bring depth to the game as players and creators of it. M.A.R. Barker had a paracosm called Tecumel. And when he got connected with Gary Gygax and TSR brought out this world as something to be a part of their lineup, it actually encouraged a greater depth in the lore and pantheons and languages of D&D because of how much effort Barker had put into it. I can completely see that. Yes. Uh, one of the things Laycock says is that Arneson and Gygax, unlike Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, were less likely to be people who would talk about Anglo-Saxon poetry of the medieval time and were more likely to talk about the mechanics of a crossbow and how you could simulate that in a game, <laughs> <laughs> right? So people like M.A.R. Barker brought a great depth to the game and forced the game to catch up to it. Now, this leads into the question, why do adults create paracosm, paracosms or indulge in imaginary worlds and role-playing? The answer that Gary Gygax once gave, which Kyle quoted before in our Dungeons & Dragons episode, was to find an adventure that's no longer possible in the world. But I think there are a few more compelling reasons that actually get to the heart of why people fear it. One, 
escaping the world as it appears to be. I, this is something that fantasy has been criticized and dismissed for, but I, I want to mention a quote from a gamer called John in New West magazine in 1980. This is a quote about escapism, ex- escapism that was used to attack D&D. Ever since I was 10, I've wanted to drop out of this world. There are so many flaws. A lot of things are unfair. When I'm in my world, I control my own world order. I can picture it all, the groves and trees, the beauty. I can hear the wind. The world isn't like that. My beliefs, morals, sense of right and wrong are much stronger since playing D&D. And it's that last part that starts to get frightening. That's what I want to talk about. One of the reasons Laycock talks about and that Christian critics have talked about D&D is that people will seek it out for a des- in a desire for heightened meaning, not as an escape, but as an annex from which to reevaluate the world. And historically, that kind of perspective was the domain of religion. It sounds like a paracosm. Yes. Like a heightened exploration of morals and values and what could be. Yes, and why it might be. Uh, The sociologist Peter Berger takes it further and says that in response to chaotic meaninglessness created by infinite choices, humans engage in collective, quote-unquote, world-building to better understand the world. And Laycock says that both religion and science could be considered tools and products of world-building for better understanding. And in that same vein so too could the imaginary worlds of role-playing games. Lake but you have more control over it if you're role-playing. Yes, or you get to take part in it and also experiment with yourself inside this new narrative about existence. Mm-hmm. Quoting Laycock, The transcendent realms accessed through myth, ritual, history, and literature offer more than just a respite from the banality of the profane. The sacred is also the means through which order is imposed on the profane world. As such, visions of sacred times and spaces have real and measurable consequences in this world. And that nicely leads into... Why fear Dungeons and Dragons? And I think especially comparing it to our never-ending story episode and, and what the purpose of that book and movie is, the same thing we laud in fantasy is why some fear it. It can be transformative. There's a great quote that Laycock uses from T.E. Lawrence in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom that I'm going to keep forever. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dream with open eyes to make it possible. So then it begs the question, what kind of dreams are you having that you bring back to your real-life perspective? And what kind of person have you played at being? It's not just Bastion playing as a Treyu in The NeverEnding Story. It's our best and our worst selves. Uh, I've got some great quotes here, so I'm going to keep using them. John Eric Holmes, a neurologist and dungeon master of a game with his hospital co-workers, said in Confessions of a Dungeon Master, Almost always, the personalities of the characters turn out to be combinations of people's idealized alter egos and their less-than-ideal impulses. 
There is hardly a game in which the players do not indulge in murder, arson, torture, rape, or highway robbery. Whoa. Yeah, so, and I've heard about people getting very rapey in D&D games. I've never played with anyone like that, but it is a thing that happens. And what if the thing that your friend wants to do when they get to do anything is play at raping people in a fantasy world? What does that say? Now, people trying to find meaning in an imaginary world and a new perspective may also have it shaped by not just the virtues of that imaginary world, but perhaps the corruption of it, which is one of the big critiques of it, besides those who think we shouldn't engage in imaginary worlds at ever because they're blasphemous. And one of the reasons that D&D was always more open to that criticism is because D&D is fundamentally concerned with morality in the first place. It is a world that involves law, chaos, good, and evil as essential components of people and things in that world. And its concern with morality in that way is part of what led people to be able to attack it as corrupt and corrupting. So, quick finish, how do we connect these fears to die and it being a horror comic? Well, die is a world shaped by the mind of an eternally teenage boy on a power trip. <laughs> and as uh, the characters engage and explore this world, they're also exploring parts of themselves that they might never otherwise. Last quote from Die, the character of Lady Ash. If it's reality and we treat it like fantasy, we become monsters. I feel like you just answered a lot of the questions that I posed in our last episode. That was really interesting, James. I'm glad you thought so. It really got me thinking. I loved doing research for this. <laughs> you can tell. It's, it is actually fascinating and scary and something that's not often mentioned. And I think it's going to tie in very nicely with my segment, especially because you pulled from research that Kieran mentioned. Yes, let's do it. So I'm going to start off by talking about the creators of Die, Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans. Uh, Kieran Gillen started out as a journalist that reviewed music and video games. As a comic book writer, he's known for various titles, including Young Avengers and Darth Vader. But he's most famous for his independent titles, Phonogram and The Wicked and The Divine, which he both worked on with artist Jamie McKelvey. Great pedigree. I'm not going to go too much into his background because we covered a bunch of it on our Wicked and Divine podcast that we did a couple years ago and which you most certainly can and are encouraged to check out. I will talk about Stephanie Hans because she did not work on The Wicked and Divine. Well, she did, but in a smaller way that we didn't quite mention in our podcast. She started drawing, she says like most children do when they're young, but she never stopped. She claims it's the best way that she can express herself. She eventually went to art school, but was a self-proclaimed bad student and hated it. She said with hindsight, what she was learning was too far from the mainstream for her, and she actually learned most of what she knows and uses today in art later from the internet. Uh, Post-graduation, she had a rough time as a young artist trying to get noticed and published, Eventually, she started working on comic book interiors for small publishers in France, where she's from, doing her own work. She realized that she needed to grow in her craft, so she stopped doing her own work and started working on the cover art for multiple publishers at the same time. This is also all France-based. Eventually, she got to give her portfolio to a Marvel talent scout, and two years later, they hired her, and as she says, the rest was history. 
She has since worked with pretty much all of the big comic book publishers, Marvel, DC, Image, Vertigo, and even on a certain comic called The Wicked and the Divine. Mm. Die, however, is her first ongoing series and her first creator-owned project. Like I mentioned earlier, she stopped doing her own work because she didn't feel ready um, when she was younger, but it said that in the past few years, she has really started thinking it might be time to try again on her own project, and then Die came up. So now I'm going to talk about the ideas behind Die and where it comes from. The idea came to Kieran at San Diego Comic-Con when he was with Jamie McKelvey and Ray Fox, another comic book artist and writer, for those who didn't know, because I didn't. And they were joking around, and one of them wondered what happened to those kids in the 90s cartoon Dungeons and Dragons. Now, this was a cartoon show about six friends that were transported to a fantasy world and were trying to find a way out. They also got powers benefiting a fantasy world. These kids, however, never got out of the world because the show was never finished. The others moved on from the joke, but the idea stuck with Kieran, and at the end of the day, he realized he was obsessed with it. And with Di, he wanted to look at those kids 20 years later. He said the evening after the conversation with McKelvey and Fox, Kieran realized why it was so stuck in his head. Because this is so creator-artist. He wondered if a part of him had been trapped in a fantasy world and had never gotten out. And the idea was so overwhelming to him that he burst into tears. Ooh, and when I such... say creator artist, I don't mean I don't respect it. I totally do. <laughs> totally respect it. Great inception moment. But it, it's also, it's so funny to think of just like, what if I'm trapped? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I haven't had similar thoughts myself. Of course. Good on you, man. Give us something great. Um, Kieran started playing RPGs when he was young and fell in love with them, he said, for the same reason he fell in love with pop music. And I love this because it's something you can lose yourself in. And he thought about how this obsessive love might have hurt him and the people around it, around him. And he started thinking about what the cost of the stuff you love is. In interviews I read, he talked about looking at his life and seeing where maybe instead of spending time with the people he loved when they needed him of being off escaping life, either in an RPG, video game, or a tabletop game. And I think that we can all relate to that, whether however you escape in one way or another. Kieran says that he always explores the highs and lows as a writer. That's what he's interested in. In Wicked and Divine, for example, he was exploring the best and worst of pop culture obsessions. And he's trying to do the same thing with Die exploring the fun of role-playing along with the lows. Um, he mentioned how there were other works out about D&D, but they all kind of tend to lean on the light and playful side. And what he thinks separates Die from them is that it goes darker. And he says that, yes, it's darker, but he's also not trying to make a quote-unquote dark comic. He thinks because, as a rule, we usually just show the fun in pop culture. By him showing the lows, it makes it seem like a dark tale, but he doesn't think die is just that. It also makes sense that someone who loves D&D would be more comfortable putting that out there now that D&D is more mainstream. Oh, I'm going to get, yeah, I'm going to get there. Ooh, did I predict something? You did. <laughs> um, Kieran wants to use die as an opportunity to con deconstruct the fantasy genre in every way he can. Um, there's many examples of how he does this, but one of the most obvious ones is that each of the characters or what, what the kids characters are in the die world is a riff on a classic D&D &D character class. Yes. 
Stephanie and Karen first worked together on Journey into Mystery in the early 20-teens, which is a Marvel Thor comic. She did interiors for the final issue, and they've been talking about working together for forever, actually creating their own comic. Um, They had another idea for a series, which they never said what it was, but they said then Die popped up, and they felt it was perfect for them. Both of them talk of the comic as a collaborative effort. Uh, Kieran did a lot of research on the development of role-playing games, as you mentioned, and put it together into what he calls a complicated thing that Stephanie then took and added more to the world building. He also came to her with the six main character concepts, and she put her own angles on them to the point where the characters wouldn't exist the way they do in the comic without her. They thought a lot about the world when this was conceived— It takes place in the 90s, 1991 to be precise. So they took into account what art was like then, what culture was like, and what would these kids make up. Um, Karen said this is the first time he's used his teenage years for content in his comics. (laughs) Stephanie talks about their relationship as a dance and the comic books as a musical score that she needs to arrange. And I, I love that idea, and it kind of makes sense with her art. Especially with Kieran Gillen and his love of music and the magic of it. Um, And talking about her process, Stephanie said she cut the comic into sequences, and each one was assigned a color gradient, all of them leading to the dye world, which had vivid reds and pure colors and lots of space. If you hadn't noticed, which made sense when I read this, but I don't think I'd actually, like, put words to it before I read it, before the audience sees the dye world, the scenes are claustrophobic and dark, and they only start to change when the border between the worlds is close. Mm. This, I think, is a fun note on the world and ties into your segment very well. Um, I read an interview on the website Shut Up and Sit Down where Kieran talks to Quinn Smith, who we actually used to role play with. And it's fun to hear the two of them talk about role playing together. And he talked about when he was first playing, there was this idea that the DM or dungeon master or person who runs the game, for those who don't know, should be antagonistic towards the player's. And he says he remembers DMs who thought they were there to make players suffer. He also started playing when the satanic panic was a thing. And there was this idea that the dungeon master was a cult leader. And you can listen to our D&D podcast to hear more about that. Soul, who is the DM in Die, um, is kind of like an accumulation of all these impressions. He was the first character to form in Karen's head and... He was also Karen was looking at how his love of fantasy could have stunted him personally. He calls him Peter Pan as a serial killer and says he's the worst version of himself than he could imagine. And I think that ties in with, you know, your um, ideas of the fear of what D&D could make someone. Yes. They started working on Die in 2016, and D&D culture was already on the rise. But he talks about how it's just blown up since then. And he feels that Die hit the zeitgeist in a way where the timing was perfect and D&D is the biggest it's ever been. And he feels that because Dungeons & Dragons isn't fighting a cultural battle anymore, it's he says it's won. It's time to have an honest discussion about it, like you mentioned earlier. <laughs> we couldn't be honest before, but now we got to. Yeah, we gotta. now that we're not defending <laughs> it, we can talk about it. Because RPGs have won, we should now explore and question them. And... Like I mentioned, he felt that this couldn't quite be done before because nerds were still trying to prove that these things were okay, that they weren't the work of Satan coming into your minds. Right. 
Um, He knows what the end he's working towards, which I always love to hear. And he says that he thinks this comic will be half as long as Wicked and Divine, which ran for five years. Um, Kieran thinks it's his best received comic yet. I haven't read anything but rave reviews, and many of its, its issues have had to go to second printings. Um, and he says that people have come up to him and said they, that they don't play RPGs, but they love the comic. Yeah, I think there's a strong connection with imaginary worlds that a lot of us engage with anyway. Mm-hmm. That's probably very relatable. So now we're going to talk about our opinions. Oh, wow. We're here. We're here. So, um, James, how do you feel about this comic? Uh, I guess in the briefest sense, I thought it was great. Uh, It's been a long time. I actually can't remember when I found a comic moving in a way that I, I put it down for a moment just to take it in. I do that with books all the time. I'll just place a book down and whoa. <laughs> but with comics, I don't tend to do it. But there were some issues here that were so well done that engaged with um, themes uh, from things like The Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's life that I found so moving that I, I took a moment. Uh, one of the things we should mention about die is that uh, the world is shaped like a 20-sided die, and each one of those facets each is a region, a mm. kingdom, a state, and each one of those states represents a part of the fantasy genre and tabletop role-playing game. So uh, the Brontes paracosm is a part of the world. Tolkien is a part of this world. Uh, and and all, pu- pulling those things together, as far as I've seen it done so far, excellent. I loved it too. I um, you were saying that you haven't had to put the comic book a comic book down like this, or you can't remember putting a comic book down like this. I am. I feel like it's one of those comics that just blew me away, and I'm putting it in the same category that I've been putting Monstrous, um, Watchmen. Um, and Saga, when I was first reading Saga. Just, and most of those are image comics. They're, yeah, they're doing it, it really big. are. <laughs> but the world is so fully researched and realized. The art is amazing. And I'm so captivated by the story. I thought Wicked and Divine was wonderful, but I feel like it was just missing that like magic little touch that I think Kieran has captured here. But it's, it's wonderful to watch an artist progress and to get better. It's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the pedigree of these people already, I I said before, when we were looking um, for something to cover and we're looking at some of the best comics of the last year and we're looking at these great fantasy works, I saw the reviews. I saw what the subject matter was, who was doing it. And I thought, this is for us. Yeah. <laughs> this is for DSRA. Uh, and it was wonderful to not be disappointed, to have that, that uh, yeah. uh, promise fulfilled. At least so far. I mean, we're talking about it in the uh, as being great like some other comics we really loved. You know, we read the first volume. It's five issues, but it is a great beginning. I love that he knows where it's going, or they know, I should say, where it's going. And I love that it's not going to be super long because I think that can be the downside of some comics is that they're successful, so they just don't end. Right. You came out to do something. Once you've done it, you can let it, you can let it go. Right. And this comic has a purpose. Yeah. Also, Art, you already said it was great. I just want to say that um, I had a feeling like I was watching a movie with an actual 
moving camera showing me perspectives of action and feeling that motion in a way that I usually don't get from comics that I think is really, really cool. Yeah. And it's a very high bar to live up to because the art in Wicked and Divine, some would argue, is the best part of the comic. The colors and the art, are it, they're amazing. So the fact that Stephanie Hans lived up to it mm. is a testament to her. And I think it's interesting when you say it's almost like a motion video because while this is written about the 90s generation that's very applicable to our generation you know of things being in motion in a video that you're watching something yeah you know because that's how we consume most of our culture right now yeah would you like to transition to uh comparing our uh paired works the never-ending story and die sure i think they can pair very well I think it would be very interesting if we had read the NeverEnding Story book because apparently this had a darker take on being in an imaginary world. Yes, a much darker take. Um, and the consequences of that. So that would be really cool. Yeah, although it does still seem to have much more positive consequences. Than die. Yeah. But I, I love that our research kind of took us to the same place in both episodes of who are the people that are escaping and why. Why? And what are they taking with them? What is it doing? What 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 is the effect of going into that imaginary world? In the never-ending story, it's clearly meant uh, to show that entering a world of hopes and dreams is beneficial, that you can take the heroism that you identify with there uh, and have that adventure in your life. I mean, the never-ending story starts with a kid getting bullied, goes to an imaginary world where he gets to play as a hero and gets to connect with a hero, this other version of himself, and brings that back riding a dragon. <laughs> to his world. To, to his world facing the bullies. And we never see the consequences of him riding that dragon around his world, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um... Uh, it's interesting to think of that idea of an alter ego where he looks at a Atreyu um, but then also how Atreyu looks back at him. Uh, in The NeverEnding Story, there's a really cool part where uh, there's this mirror where you can see yourself as you really are, mm -hmm. and Atreyu sees this boy, right. you know? And that really relates to what I was talking about in my segment, an imaginary world as an annex from which to view the real world. NeverEnding Story literally has that in right. it, where the hero looks at the less heroic part of himself that is in the real world. Whereas Dai is looking at these kids and what they choose to be in a fantasy world, and is that really what you are? Oh, yeah, one of the more interesting takes on that is how uh, a character that has the pronouns of he and him in the real world then in Dai becomes Lady Ash. Yeah. And, and switches to a she. Yeah. Also how the atheist in the real world is a cleric who controls the gods or binds the gods to her yes. in the die world. Which gets into that idea of exploring different parts of yourself that, okay, what if when you're role-playing you as an atheist, what would it be like to interact with gods primarily as your way of relating to the world around you? Um, you're someone that maybe, you know, would like to try on that idea of being more feminine, maybe being female, and this is a place that you can do it. Those, those ideas about yourself and, and how you interact with the world could have really big consequences when you come back to the real world. Um, there, there's another character that their, their weapon is powered by their grief, their power is. And so in Die, what could hold them back in our world is still painful in this world, but also powers them. 
Mm. is also part of their strength in interacting with the world, which, I mean, th- th- there's a lot of darkness there, but and there's trauma for the characters in Die, but there's also really positive things that they could bring back with them to the real world. But the question is, do they bring it back? Yes, because like I said, a lot of what we see is trauma from being in that world and coming back to their real lives. That's what they bring with them. Uh, kind of the opposite of... Uh, the never-ending story. Yeah, with Bastion. Which is why I think it would be interesting to see the full story. Yes. To read it. Um, and then what I also wanted to talk about was the lows of D&D. That's what I came away with my research, you know. And do we do harm to ourselves? I tend to not. I mean, for me personally, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but is that something that we should be thinking about more? Uh, I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's funny because um, there's this tendency to say things like, oh, violent video games uh, don't cause violence, you know, and they don't cause school shootings. And I think it's scientifically a very fair point because violent video games go all over the world and the rest of the world doesn't have the violent shooting problem that the United States does. So you can look at it very black and white that way. But I violent think, people could be ten, could tend to enjoy violent video games. Yes, but I do think there's also something to be said for the thing we love about fantasy that you and I like about it, the things we can experience from it. Um, part of why they're powerful and meaningful is that it does help to shape us. I think that our values are shaped by the things that we take in and that the stories we tell to each other are always in some way stories about ourselves. Fiction right. can help you to empathize with other people because of that. And it can also help you to see, who do I want to be? But these stories are also shaped by the culture that we're in or the culture that has shaped the culture that we're in if we're talking about, say, Tolkien's work. Yes. So I, I think that it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing where, like, yes, we're shaped by this fantasy, but also this fantasy is shaped by our world. Yes. It's a cycle that goes back and forth as we imagine ourselves into being. Right. But yeah. I think the idea of the fear of what we could become and the worst part of ourselves is really interesting. And you talk about, you've heard of games where there's a ton of rape in them. Yeah, that's the thing. It's actually, if we were to talk about Dungeons and & Dragons and barriers to more female players, um, people talk in forums on the internet about the difficulty of being a woman and joining a game and finding all this nasty sexual content in it with a, with a group of guys. Uh, and I really, I mean, you can say, oh, like shooting people in a video game doesn't mean you want to shoot people in real life. I'm totally down with that. Play a lot of violent video games. But the eye is also a window to the soul. I also believe that, that if you're taking in a lot of darkness, it's hard not to become darker yourself. And I don't want to play D&D with somebody who wants to play at raping people right. as a part of the game. And that is something that people do and have always done as part of D&D. Not saying that's the majority, but that it is good to acknowledge there is the potential for, for exploring such awful parts of ourselves and to consider what that means to give them that kind of uh, right. sweat. But uh, wouldn't some people argue that, like, oh, you play it here so it doesn't affect the real world? I think— Which, I, think, I guess, could be true. Could be true. Could be true. I mean, it, it's—fiction helps us to empathize with other perspectives, to be able to have insight into the way other people think. Like we said, it's part of why children do it to better understand the world around them. There is something to playing an evil character and getting inside how they rationalize and justify their actions that could be really good for a good person to do. Oh, totally. And I, I do like how you were saying that uh, kids who have, um, oh my gosh, the, what's the world? The, the world? Paracosms. Paracosms. There we go. You just said it a million times. Uh, the kids who have paracosms have more empathy, that they can understand others. 
Yes, that, that adults who, who engage with narrative often are, or studies have shown they have a better insight into other people. Um, and some studies have shown that kids who, for instance, play with imaginary friends are more socially aware. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get to get into that because I wanted to focus on paracosms, but that kind of imagination of what it would be like to be another person and think like them, it can really genuinely be helpful. Yeah, and it's funny because the, the, you know, the fears of fantasy and that, you know, the, the devil is influencing it. And, you know, like the whole thing when Harry Potter came out and there was a bunch of Christian groups that were against it because it had witches in it. Harry Potter is such a blatant messianic figure. He is such a Christ figure. We don't have time to talk about all of it, but it is so obvious. It's crazy that Christians wouldn't like it. Well, yeah, but it's also funny because I feel like so many of the lessons in Harry Potter that J.K. Rowling is trying to get through is being kind to others and that people being different from you or not quite your idea of what they should be is okay. That, you know, we talked about how fantasy has affected us or that's something that we wanted to talk about in this. I think of, you can read some fantasy like, you know, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And I feel like it does hold humanity to a high standard or the authors do. Now you can read some George R. R. Martin and think completely different things about the world. Yes. But and what it all means. What narrative are we really a part of? Right. In the world. Right. Yeah. But I think that there can also you know, exploring some issues through fantasy. We talk about it a lot with science fiction, but how this is a way for you to explore problems while not necessarily putting a name on it or calling out a specific group. Yes, yes. And, you know, a lot of the criticism that I read in Laycock's book about dangerous games, you know, the word that he was repeating and quoting from, from Christians, but it's really worth noting that some of the best paracosms we've ever heard of are from notable Christians like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien mm -hmm. who built their worlds with those values. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis is making an allegory that is literally meant to help you better understand and help children better understand Christ's love for them and a sense of adventure as a Christian that they can take back into their real life. I mean, Brandon Sanderson is a Christian who's one of the most prominent fantasy writers today. Yes, yes. So I, I just want to make sure too, I mean... And it's not that... Non-Christians can't write great fantasy. Of I don't think George R. R. Martin is religious. No, I, I'm just saying that, too. If, for me, it matters as a Christian gamer and lover of fantasy to say, hey, there are some Christian critics who have those awful things to say about imaginary worlds, but there's also C.S. Lewis, who has a very different take on the virtues of imaginary worlds. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm James Foey. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. And we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at James Foey Jr., that's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find Kyle, our other host, at Klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about the comic Die and the uh, subject of imaginary worlds and what we gain and maybe lose from them on our Facebook page. 
once again. I'm your producer, James Foey. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragon, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.